Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 48. This is a Psalm of Zion. It may have been originally composed for one of the pilgrimage festivals, but like many Psalms, it is not merely a celebration of past events, but is rather a declaration of faith in who God is and how God acts across time with respect to his covenant people. So, for example, Derek Kidner says, The church can sing this psalm with the triumphs of the gospel in mind and with an eye to the final route, closed quote. That's how history works in the Bible. Past events are often spoken of as more than things that happened. They are not merely facts. They are patterns. They illustrate who God is and how God works in time to establish his purposes on the earth. Now, some of this comes more naturally to the Hebrew mind. We spoke about this in the last episode when we were looking at Psalm 47. I mentioned that the Hebrew language doesn't have tenses in the same way that English does. Hebrew tenses are more about aspect, which refers to whether a particular situation is viewed by the speaker or writer as a complete whole or as something that is developing. If a writer is referring to an event from the outside as an observer upon a complete act, an act that started and finished, then he will usually use the perfect tense. If the event is being considered from the inside as an ongoing reality, then the writer will use the imperfect, meaning that very often what we would call past events are to the Hebrew mind something to be entered into as a way of understanding reality and even as a way of predicting the future. Now, that makes sense if you believe what they believed about God. They believed, as all Bible readers and people of faith ought to believe, that God is unchanging. And therefore, who he was is who he is, is who he ever will be, and how he acted is how he acts and how he always will act. Therefore, history is prophecy. You can hear that basic conviction in Martin Luther's introduction to this psalm. He says, We sing this psalm because God is pleased to preserve his church and gospel against the roaring and hatred of kings and princes who cease not from attacking them by violence and craft with all their might. And yet, they shall perish and be confounded and covered with shame while the gospel shall remain as it was before, unhurt and unhindered. Close quote. We sing this psalm, he says, because God is still God. This is who he is, and this is how he acts with respect to his people and his purposes. And that is absolutely true. That is how the Bible works. Thanks be to God. Psalm 48 begins with this ascription, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Now, we don't know who wrote this psalm. Luther thinks it was David. 
Calvin thinks it was not David. Matthew Henry splits the difference. He says very wisely, For aught I know, it might be penned by David upon occasion of some eminent victory obtained in his time, yet not so calculated for that, but that it might serve any other similar occasion in after times and be applicable also to the glories of the gospel church, of which Jerusalem was a type. Closed quote. That's probably a good place to land. It might have been written by David as he contemplated a certain spectacular victory, and from that began to think of a general truth and pattern that may happily be extended to the glories of the gospel church and the certainties of the full and future triumph of the kingdom. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. It's important for us to notice what the psalmist says there in verse 3. Let me read that again. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. So this isn't really a song celebrating Zion per se. It is a song celebrating Zion's God. Zion is a citadel because God is in it. Likewise, Mount Zion is beautiful in elevation because God has honored it as the place where he has chosen to dwell in a particular way. Alan Ross comments here saying, only because of God's condescension to dwell on Mount Zion may she be called beautiful in her elevation. The beauty and joy are not inherent in Mount Zion because it is surrounded by higher mountains offering a better panoramic view, closed quote. So Mount Zion wasn't even the highest or nicest mountain in the area. It was only beautiful and blessed because the Lord was pleased to dwell there. And of course, so it is with the church. There is very little natural glory in the church. Her people are not naturally the best or the brightest. In fact, the church, because it is often gracious, kind, and very welcoming, often attracts people who would not be welcome or wanted anywhere else. Her people, naturally speaking, are often the least and the lowest. And yet, because God is in her midst, she is glorious. As it was, so it is, and so it ever will be. Get used to that kind of thinking. Verse 4, For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together, as soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. So here, the psalmist is reflecting on a particular past deliverance. J. Alec Machir is reasonably certain that it refers to the deliverance of Jerusalem from the assault of the Assyrian Empire. He says that the psalm was obviously inspired by a particular event in the history of Israel, and none suits it better than the Assyrian invasion and the rout of Sennacherib's forces. Closed. Quote, he might be right. I can't think of an event that better matches what is said in this psalm. 
We don't know. Again, we don't know for sure whether it was written by David or somebody much later. It doesn't much matter. But he may be right. It may have been written later than David, and it may have been reflecting on that particular intervention of God. That was certainly a tremendous victory. If you remember the story, you remember that this massive army was marching southward towards Jerusalem, the largest land army that had ever been assembled in ancient history. The people of Jerusalem were quaking in their boots. You can read the story for yourself in 2 Kings 18 and 19. Sennacherib, the great king of Assyria, sent an advance force to scout out Jerusalem and to sow fear in the inhabitants. They called out this advance force. They called out and spoke to the soldiers manning the walls and said that they would soon be doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. As Sennacherib had done to all the other nations, so he would soon do to you. So King Hezekiah went to Isaiah the prophet and told him all that had been done and said, and Isaiah spoke these words of comfort from the Lord. Isaiah 37, 33 to 35 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Closed quote. And then 2 Kings 19, 35 to 37 gives us the end of the story. It says, and that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adremelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place, closed quote. And thus began the downfall of Assyria. Well, as Machir suggests, that story, that event fits this psalm to a T. Verse four says that kings assembled. That's what an empire is. One king sitting over many kings and many nations that he has conquered. That's why Assyria was able to assemble the largest land army in human history. It was comprised of many nations. They came and saw the city, but immediately they were thrown into panic. The angel of the Lord struck them in the night, and in the day they ran home to Nineveh as if pursued by the very hounds of hell. That's what happened. And that's the sort of thing the psalmist is referring to. So maybe that's the event, or maybe some other event very much like it, that the psalmist steps into and begins to consider not just a historical occurrence, but rather a reliable pattern, establishing who God is and how he acts with respect to his people. That's how the psalm is supposed to be used. Joseph A. Alexander, the well-known Old Testament scholar, says here, as Jerusalem is here regarded not as a mere town, but as the seat of the theocracy, the earthly residence of God, the promise is still valid in its strongest sense with respect to the church, of which the ancient Zion was the constituted type and local center. Do you hear that? That's the point of the psalm. We step into that event to understand who God is and how he will act with respect to his people 
in all times and in every generation. Verse nine, we have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. So you can hear the psalmist now doing exactly what we just said we're supposed to be doing. He is stepping into the event and reflecting upon it. We have thought on your covenant love. That's the word there, kesed. It refers to God's covenant love toward his people. We have stepped into this event and thought about it, the psalmist says. And when we think about it, we praise your name as well we should. When God's people consider what God reveals about himself in his works of judgment and salvation, they praise his name. They give him glory, and rightly so. Verse 12, walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. The psalmist has stepped into the event, which in his mind is no mere past fact. It is a present reality. It is a future reality. He steps into it now, just on the other side of the total rout of the seemingly invincible enemy. And he says to his choir, his church, he says, let's take a stroll, shall we? Around the city walls. Look, not a stone is out of place. Not a single bulwark has been breached. This is God, our God, forever and ever. Therefore, whom shall we fear? The ESV's ending is somewhat unfortunate. For some reason, they leave the last Hebrew word in the psalm untranslated. You'll spot it easily enough if you compare with most other English translations. The New American Standard, for example, renders verse 14, For such is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us until death. The ESV has that as a footnote, but for some reason doesn't actually put it into the main text, despite that the words are there in the original Hebrew. These words and the sentiment they express are echoed in the classic hymn, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. The final verse takes up the idea of God guiding us even unto death. Verse 3 of that hymn has a singing, when I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises, songs of praises, I will ever give to thee. I will ever give to thee. That is the song of the church in every generation. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. 
I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the Fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.